Let us go now to Proverbs chapter 2 for the Old Testament reading and then Ephesians 5, 15 through 21. I put it up on the screen for you. Um, I was thinking this morning it might be a good practice for us, brothers and sisters, not to rely too much upon the screen, uh, but to even have our children bring their Bibles with them and to turn uh, the pages of Holy Scripture to these texts so that they're familiar with um, the, the, the Scriptures, the copy of the Scriptures that they have in their hands. Proverbs 2. Hear now the reading of God's most holy word. My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments within you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding, yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity, guarding the paths of justice and watching over the way of his saints. Then you will understand righteousness and justice and equity, every good path. For wisdom will come into your heart, and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. Discretion will watch over you. Understanding will guard you, delivering you from the way of evil, from men of perverted speech who forsake the paths of uprightness to walk in the ways of darkness, who rejoice in doing evil and delight in the perverseness of evil, men whose paths are crooked and who are devious in their ways. So you will be delivered from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words, who forsakes the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God. For her house sinks down to death and her paths to the departed. None who go to her come back, nor do they regain the paths of life. So you will walk in the way of the good and keep to the paths of the righteous. For the upright will inhabit the land and those with integrity will remain in it. But the wicked will be cut off from the land and the treacherous will be rooted out of it. Let's go now to Ephesians chapter 5. And consider verses 15 through 21. This is our sermon text for today. today. Ephesians 5, 15. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore do not be drunk, excuse me, therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So far, the reading of God's most holy word. May the Lord bless the preaching of it today. Before we dive into the text of Ephesians 5, 15 through 21, I think it would be beneficial to note its place in this epistle. Uh, This passage that we are about to consider brings Paul's exhortation to the church in general to walk worthy to a conclusion. Uh, From 4.1 to 5.21, Paul has the church as a whole in mind when he exhorts them to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which they have been called. He has the entire congregation in mind in these exhortations that he brings to us here in this section. 
Uh, We have encountered uh, the metaphor of walking seven times now in Ephesians. In 2.1 we read, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. In 2.10 the apostle said, For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And then in 4.1, we heard the apostles say, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner calling, worthy of the calling to which you have been called. In 4.17, we read, Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. 5.2 says, And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. 5.8 For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. And lastly, here in 5.15, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. And so clearly Paul has been concerned to open the Christian's mind to this reality. The change that has been wrought within us by the Word of God and by the power of the Holy Spirit is to produce a new walk. A new way of life that fits our new creation self in Christ Jesus. And as I have said, up to this point, the the Apostle has had the church as a whole in view as he has urged us to walk worthily in Christ Jesus. But I want to glance forward just a little bit. And as we do, we will notice that Paul will soon turn his attention to the home and to the various relationships that exist within it. In 5.22-33, through 33, he will address the relationship between husband and wife. In 6.1-4, through 4, he will discuss the relationship between parents and children. And in 6.5-9, through 9, he will address the relationship between bondservants and masters. And it is not until 6.10 that he turns his attention once again to the church in general to offer a final exhortation before bringing his letter to a conclusion. So, so please understand that here in 5:15 through 21, our text for today, we have the conclusion to the section that began in 4:1, wherein Paul exhorts Christians in general and as the church in, in its entirety, a male and female, young and old, rich and poor, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which they have been called. So we should pay careful attention to what Paul says here by way of conclusion of this section. And in brief, Paul commands two things. He concludes this section of his epistle in this way. He commands the Christian to walk in wisdom. And then secondly, he commands the Christian to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And we need to ask, well, what do these things mean? Uh, First of all, let us consider the command to walk in wisdom. Verse 15 Look carefully then how you walk, the Apostle says. As I have said before, this is the seventh and last appearance of the word walk in Paul's letter. And here we are warned by the Apostle to walk carefully in this world. All who are living walk, but not all who walk, walk carefully. I think you would agree with this statement. I can remember a time when my children were younger. When some of them, and I can't remember which ones exactly, I know it was David for sure, they had a bad habit of walking but not looking where they were going. Maybe your kids are at that phase of life right now. They, they run around but their head is pointed to the side always. And, and so I remember as a dad always saying to them, 
Put your eyes in front of you. You know, I was, I was afraid for their well-being. I also remember a season where David constantly had a large knot on his forehead uh, from running into things. Uh, at one point, his forehead matched the height of doorknobs, and so he had this, this large knot on his head, and it was just perpetually there. Uh, he was walking, but he was not walking carefully. And Paul says that we are to walk carefully in this world. We are to not be reckless. But what does a careful walk look like? Conversely, what does a reckless walk look like? And I think you would agree with me that the answer to that question will differ from person to person depending on their values. If a person values physical pleasure above all else, for example, then a walk that produces pleasure will be deemed careful, whereas a walk that produces pain or discomfort will be deemed reckless. If a person loves money above all else, then decisions will be deemed to be either careful or reckless depending upon the financial consequences of those decisions. If a person is supremely concerned about health and safety, then the question of whether a walk is careful or reckless will be judged according to the criteria of health and safety. But what does Paul have in mind? That is the question. When he says, look carefully then how you walk, what what does he think a careful walk looks like? Well, we should remember that he has already described a worthy walk in 4.1 through 5.14. He certainly has all of that in mind. A careful Christian walk looks like what he has previously described. And he will continue to describe a worthy walk in the rest of his letter as he turns his attention to husbands and wives, parents and children, bondservants and masters. And so when Paul says, look carefully then how you walk, he is urging all of us to contemplate what he has already said in his letter and what he will later say to fix our eyes upon the standard and to obey it. Walk carefully in this world is his exhortation. But here Paul says more. He tells us that we are to walk as people who are wise. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. Wisdom is the art of godly living. I think that is a good definition for wisdom. Wisdom is the art, the skill of godly living. To be wise is to live life according to truth. God has revealed His truth in nature, but even more clearly in His Word. And the wise person lives his or her life according to God's Word, according to God's truth. Wise people obey God's commandments. To sin against God, to violate His law, is never wise. It's always foolish. But more than this, the one who is wise has learned to choose not only the right path, but the best path in the realm of righteousness. And how is this wisdom attained? How do we gain wisdom? Well, we know from Scripture that wisdom begins with the fear of the Lord. As Proverbs 9.10 so famously says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. So it is impossible to walk in wisdom without first fearing God, without first having reverence for Him, without honoring Him. And we grow in wisdom as our knowledge of Him increases. Wisdom comes from knowing God. It comes from knowing His Word. Wisdom increases as we learn over time and with much practice to obey 
God's word and to choose the best paths as we sojourn in this world. And so I want for you to notice this here in Ephesians. Paul is not only calling the Christian to walk obediently. Uh, that is to say, in obedience to God's commandments in thought, word, and deed. Now this he has done. He has urged us to obey. But more than this, he is calling the Christian to pursue wisdom. Obeying God's law and walking according to wisdom are not the same thing. They are related, of course. But they are not the same. As I have said, disobeying God's law is never wise. It is always foolish. But wisdom is something more. Wisdom, as I have said, is the art of godly living. Wisdom not only chooses the right path, but it chooses the best paths in the realm of righteousness. And so the apostle says, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. And then the apostle says, Making the best use of time, because the days are evil. I think this is a very interesting and a very important phrase. Making the best use of the time, because the days are evil, uh, the apostle says. The wise person knows that the days are evil. What does this mean? I think it means two things. One, the days are evil in that they are, in this present age, filled with wickedness and the temptation to do that which is wicked in the sight of God. Perhaps you have noticed this. The days are evil in this sense. Uh, Evil permeates uh, this world in this present age. The fool is oblivious to this reality. But the Christian who is wise knows that their adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. That is 1 Peter 5, 8. And they are watchful, therefore. They are, they are careful as they walk in this world, knowing that the days are evil. Two, the one who is wise knows that the days are evil in the sense that they are fleeting. They are fleeting. And so they, are, they go on to make the best use of the time, as Paul says in the first half of this verse. Notice that we are to make the best use of the time. We are to spend the time that we have on earth in the best possible way. We are not to waste time. We are to invest in the best things, eternal and lasting things, knowing that they are, that our lives are, are, are like a, a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes, as James says. The days of our life in this present Age are evil. They are filled with temptation. They are marked by trials and tribulations, and they are they are fleeting. Time flies away from us so quickly. This is not to say that our days are all bad and never good. Paul is not so pessimistic. He urges us in other places to to, to rejoice in the Lord, to to give thanks to God for the good things that we enjoy in in this life. Uh, but his insight here is is very important. If we are to walk according to wisdom, we must recognize that in this sense, uh, the days are evil in this present age. Uh, There is temptation all around. There is wickedness all around. There is a, a roaring lion that seeks to devour us. And our days are fleeting. They are few in number. And The one who is wise recognizes this and makes the very best use of of the time that they have. They are careful, therefore, in their walking. Paul is concerned that we walk according to wisdom. And then the apostle again describes a wise walk, saying 
Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. We speak of the will of God in two ways. We speak of His hidden or secret will, His sovereign will. Um, And when we speak of that will of God, we are talking about all that will certainly come to pass. We're talking about what He has decreed from eternity past. We cannot know that will unless He has revealed certain aspects of it to us. Christ will return in the future. We know that. Christ will make all things new. We know that. But most of God's uh, secret, hidden, sovereign will, it's hidden to us. We cannot know it. Clearly, uh, the Apostle is not here commanding us to understand what the secret will of the Lord is. Uh, Those things, those hidden things, belong to the Lord our God. Instead, uh, Paul is commanding us here to understand what God's revealed will is. And when we talk about God's revealed will, we are talking about those things that God has revealed to us in the Holy Scriptures. What is God's will for us? Well, we know what God's will is for us. We know that God calls us to live in obedience to the commandments that He has given. Read the Ten Commandments if you would like to know what God's will is for you. Read all of the Scriptures. For example, read 1 Thessalonians 5.18 which says so clearly... Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Did you hear it? What is God's will for you, brothers and sisters? Well, one thing that we can say is that we live a life of thanksgiving before the Lord, that we give thanks to God in all circumstances, in the good and in the bad. Uh, This is God's will for you, the Scriptures say. 1 Thessalonians 4.3 says, For this is the will of God your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Do you want to know the will of God for you? Read the Scriptures. Read God's law. Read the New Testament. There you will find what God wants from you. It is His decreed will. It is His commandment. So you see that God's revealed will is not mysterious. It can be known. And the Christian must know it. The Christian should say to God, along with the psalmist, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Psalm 119.11. And the Christian is to forever grow in the art of godly living, learning to apply the revealed truths of Holy Scripture to the daily circumstances that they face. Therefore, do not be foolish, Paul says, but understand what the will of the Lord is. So friends, I ask you, are you walking carefully? Are your eyes in front of you, as it were, fixed upon Christ and His Word? Are you making the best use of time? Knowing that the days are evil, I think our young people need to be exhorted to do this especially so because they have not learned yet that the days are fleeting the way that those who are advanced in years have learned it. Life does fly by, doesn't it? When you're young, you feel like time moves so slowly. You feel as if you'll be young forever, uh, not knowing that in fact you'll blink and you'll be in your 30s and then 40s. You'll have children of your own who are preparing to leave the home, right? Uh, Life flies by. The days are evil in this sense. We are to make the best use of our time. Are you pursuing wisdom, seeking to grow ever more in your knowledge of the will of God for you in Christ Jesus? And this is what it means to walk in a manner that is worthy. Not only are we to put off the old self and the old sinful thoughts, words, and deeds, not only are we to put on the new self created anew in Christ Jesus, we are also to pursue wisdom. 
We must seek to know the will of the Lord and learn to obey all that Christ has commanded in every circumstance of life. And brothers and sisters, I wonder if we are not sometimes too easily pleased with our progress in sanctification. I wonder if we are not too easily contented with a sanctification that takes us merely to a place of socially acceptable behavior within Christ's church. I wonder if you know what I mean by that. You know, we've brought things under control in life so we could put up a good front, so that we can smile when we come to church. Uh, But really our sanctification is superficial. It hasn't gone to the heart of things. It hasn't permeated our life even within the home. And so... Here I am saying, let's go beyond sanctification that merely knocks the rough edges off and puts forward a good face, but comes short of true holiness and thought, word and deed. A sanctification that comes short of true wisdom. May we forever chase after a deeper understanding of God's will for us, so that we might walk carefully in this world, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time. The second command uttered by the Apostle in this text is found in verse 18, which says, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. In fact, there are two commands here in verse 18. One is negatively stated, do not get drunk with wine. The other is positively stated, be filled with the Spirit. But these two commands are to be taken together as one. Uh, The meaning is this, uh, be Uh, The meaning is this, instead of giving yourself over to fleshly passions and being driven by earthly things, drinking to the point of drunkenness being an example of such behavior, be driven and controlled by the Holy Spirit of God so that you carefully and soberly do God's will. These two commandments, I think, are saying the same thing to us. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. Give control to the Holy Spirit of God so that you soberly and carefully do God's will. First, Paul commands us not to be drunk with wine. Do notice that he does not say do not drink wine. He could have. But rather, do not get drunk with wine. Whether or not you drink wine or some other alcoholic beverage is your choice to make. I think the choice actually falls into the realm of wisdom. Wisdom might dictate that you choose to abstain from all alcohol. But never should you judge your brother or sister who chooses to partake. And vice versa. Secondly, Paul commands us to be filled with the Spirit. So in the place of being filled with wine to the point of drunkenness leading to sin, the Christian is to be filled with the Spirit of God leading to a worthy walk. But what is this filling that Paul speaks of here? What is this filling of the Holy Spirit? He has already taught that the Christian is filled with the Spirit earlier in his epistle. The Christian is sealed with the Spirit, as he says in 1.13 and 4.30. The Christian has access to the Father in the Spirit, as he says in 2.18. The church collectively is being built into a temple, a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And Paul's prayer was that the Christian would be strengthened with power through God's Spirit in their inner being, as he says there in 3.16. And in 4.1, the exhortation was that we would be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Everything stated in Ephesians up to this point would indicate that the believer is in the Spirit, and the Spirit in the believer from the time of conversion. Paul is not here commanding the Christian to receive the Spirit or to have some experience of the Spirit, but rather to walk in the Spirit, to be Spirit-filled and Spirit-controlled 
from day to day. That is the meaning here in the text that is before us. What Paul says here in Ephesians, I think, is similar to what he says in Romans 8, 4 and following. There he describes Christians as those who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And then he continues to say, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, he says to the Christians in Rome, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. And so it is clear, to belong to God through faith in Jesus Christ is to have the Spirit of God. But Paul's exhortation in Ephesians and in Romans, in the text that we have just read, is to now walk in the Spirit to daily and momentarily give the Spirit of God control, to to seek to do God's will, being empowered and moved along by uh, the Holy Spirit. Uh, To have Christ is to have the Spirit, the Apostle so clearly teaches. Do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. How do we do this? How do we do this? How do we live a Spirit-filled life? How do we walk in the Spirit, as Paul says elsewhere? I think the context makes it abundantly clear. We walk in the Spirit and are filled with the Spirit when we give the Spirit control, when we live not for the things of this world, but the things of God, when we seek to please the Lord and not ourselves, when we walk worthily, as Paul has described previously and will continue to describe. Walking in the Spirit, being filled with the Spirit is to walk obediently, to live in dependence upon the Holy Spirit of God, and to, and to obey God's commandments. You will notice that the Apostle goes on to describe what a Spirit-filled existence looks like in this passage. Look again at 5.18. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. The words addressing, singing, giving thanks, and submitting describe the means by which the Christian demonstrates that he or she is indeed filled with the Holy Spirit. Stated in the form of a question, What will the Christian who is walking in the Spirit do? And the answer is that he or she will address other believers with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. The Christian will sing and make melody to the Lord with their heart. The Christian will give thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the Christian will submit to other believers out of reverence for Christ. This is what a Spirit-filled existence will look like. Please note this, to be Spirit-filled involves walking with Christ as a member of the church. That should be clear from this text. It involves corporate worship. It involves true fellowship. The one who is Spirit-filled will sing in the Christian congregation. The one who is filled with the Spirit will give thanks to God in the church 
The one who is filled with the Spirit will submit to other believers in Christ's name. I think all of this begins to make perfect sense when we remember what the Apostle has already said concerning the church. The church, remember, is the temple of the Holy Spirit. To the church in Ephesus, Paul said, In Him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And so to be filled with the Spirit, or some will translate it this way, to be filled in the Spirit is to obey the Spirit and not the flesh. And the one who is filled with the Spirit will show that they are by fulfilling their function as stones in God's spiritual temple, namely the church. They will assemble to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. They will assemble to sing praises to God. They will assemble to give thanks. This is all temple imagery that we are encountering here. This is what the old covenant saints would do at the temple. They would come to sing to God. They would come to give thanks to God, offering up sacrifices to Him. They would come for fellowship, to submit to one another in God. And what Paul is here saying in Ephesians, and he paints such a beautiful picture of it, is that we do not go to a physical temple to worship God any longer because Christ, the true temple, has come and we are His spiritual temple. And if we are indeed walking in the Spirit, and if we are indeed to be Spirit-filled, this is what we must do. We must come together as as God's Spirit-filled temple and give glory to God, worship God, encourage one another in Christ Jesus. This is what it looks like to be Spirit-filled. The one who says that they are Spirit-filled, who refuses to join themselves to the church and to worship God in the Christian congregation, is a liar and the truth is not in them. It is completely out of step with biblical Christianity. Let us briefly consider the three things that Paul mentions here in verses 19 through 21 that accompany a spirit filled existence, namely singing, giving thanks, and submitting. First of all, the one who is spirit filled will sing. Specifically, they will sing to God. They will sing and make melody to the Lord with their heart, is what Ephesians 5 19 says. And so being Spirit-filled will show itself in corporate worship. The people of God are a singing people. The angels in heaven sing. Have you thought of this? Throughout the history of redemption, God's people have sung. They sing praises to Him. And this corresponds to what goes on in the heavenly realm day and night. The angels sing praises to the Lord. I suppose we could just speak to the Lord. We could just say thank you to Him in a normal tone, in conversation. But God has wired us in such a way that we are able to sing. What a marvelous thing this is. I want you to think about this marvelous gift that we have. We as human beings are able to sing. We have the ability to put our words into the form of song. When we pray to God, we express ourselves in ordinary speech. But God is so great and His love for us is so marvelous. Our appreciation for Him is so grand that we are moved to express our prayers even in the form of song. To speak, the mind must be engaged. But to sing, one must use the mind and the heart. Perhaps you have noticed this, that when your heart is hard towards God and to the things of God, it is actually difficult to sing. It's hard to bring yourself even to do it. Maybe it's impossible. But those who are walking in the Spirit will sing. They will make melody to the Lord with their heart, the text says. 
And this they will do, notice, not only as individuals. I hope that you sing even when you're alone, that you sing praises to God. I think that is completely appropriate, of course. But this is something that we are to do within the Christian congregation. That is what is being described here. Notice that Paul describes them as singing, not only to God, but to one another. They are said to address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And I wonder if you think about worship, corporate worship in this way. When we sing as a congregation, our praise is certainly directed towards God and never towards man. But there is another dimension. As we sing, we are, in fact, at the same time addressing one another. As the text so beautifully says, we are singing to God things that are true. And when we sing, all who are in the congregation hear those words and are therefore encouraged by them. And notice that the Christian congregation is to sing not just any song. It is not as if here the apostle is saying, you should sing because it's therapeutic, you know. It is not that. We are not to sing just any song, but we are to sing specifically psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to the Lord. Uh, Some interpret these terms, psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, to mean that the church is only permitted to sing inspired scripture. I don't know if you've encountered this view. It is actually not uncommon within the Reformed tradition. There are some Reformed churches that will only sing the psalms. To speak bluntly here, I think we need to do that more. We need to learn to sing the psalms together and give more of a priority to psalm singing. It's really a beautiful thing. Uh, You can find psalters online. Um, The psalms, the book of psalms is what I'm referring to here. I put uh, into song uh, so so that they can be sung by the church even uh, today. But our view of uh, this verse would be different Our view is that we should sing Scripture, the Psalms, and other songs that are found within its pages, but that the church is also permitted to sing other songs, that is to say new songs, provided that they are true to Scripture, provided that they reflect the themes, spirit, and reverence of the songs contained within Holy Scripture. So are we permitted to write new songs? I think we are, but we should be careful when we do. They need to be truthful And they should reflect the inspired songs that we do find within the pages of Holy Scripture. They should be reverent. They should reflect the range of human emotions that are found within the Psalms. Have you ever read the Psalms and thought to yourself, really, this is a song? You know, this is such a negative psalm. Uh, The psalmist is lamenting. The psalmist is crying out that God's wrath would be poured out upon his enemies. This is what they sung in those days. Uh, Our songs tend to be, our modern ones, always positive. And I'm glad that they are. We are indeed to give thanks to God in our singing. But I think it is right for us to even sing psalms and songs, modern ones, uh, that that express the grief that we sometimes feel and bring those things to the Lord as we sing uh, to Him. To be filled with the Spirit means that we will sing praises to God in the midst of the Christian congregation. And I would like to slow down for just a moment to reflect upon this more. Um, I think we need to recognize how important this element of our worship is. 
It's not as if we sing just so that you might be entertained, you know, so that church would be more fun. Uh, it, it is not that, but rather we are commanded to sing. Uh, this is what God has ordained. And for a reason, God deserves our praise. We are to sing from the heart to Him. Uh, and also it is good for the Christian congregation. When we gather together Lord's Day by Lord's Day, we read Scripture, we pray, we observe the sacrament, and we sing. And our, our singing is very important. Again, the songs that we sing must be either scriptural or scripture or true to scripture. The songs that we sing should reflect the range of human emotion found within the songs of scripture. This I have already said. And our singing must be congregational. You have noticed, no doubt, how simple our music is here at Emmaus, and this is deliberate. The job of the worship leader, as they are called nowadays, is simply to conduct. And the church is the choir. That is the biblical view. We have a conductor and we have the choir. We have grown in our convictions over the years that any style of music that draws attention to those on stage and encourages observation rather than participation from the members is out of step with the biblical notion of singing. When the church assembles, each member is to participate addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with their heart. And I want for you to think of what happens when we do this. One, God is glorified as we collectively give thanks to Him in our singing, as we cry out to Him in our singing. Two, our unity with one another is communicated and strengthened. Together we sing the same words to the same God through the same mediator and by the same Spirit. That's powerful, isn't it? When we sing together, we praise the Father with one voice. And by the way, I do think it would be good and right for us as a congregation to work on our singing. I pray that you sing out to the Lord boldly, even if your voice is having a difficult time finding the tune. Still sing boldly. But I think it is right for us as a church to work on our singing. We should learn to the best of our ability to sing well. I think our singing should be strong and heartfelt. We should even learn to harmonize. I was reflecting upon this um, just yesterday. Think about what harmony is. It's beautiful. It, it produces a beautiful sound, which is fitting for the worship of God. But when we harmonize, it reflects the unity in diversity that exists within Christ's church. All different voices crying out to the same God together. And yet there's a, a unity in our song. Wonderful. I think it is good for us to to think about how important our singing is and even to work on singing beautifully to the Lord. Uh, three, when we sing together, those whose faith is in that moment weak will be strengthened by those whose faith is strong. Think of this. Every Lord's Day we come into this place and some are encouraged and some are very discouraged. But think of the way that those who are discouraged will be carried along and uplifted by the voice of those who are in that moment encouraged in the Lord. Think of this. They come in discouraged with faith that is weak and they're having a difficult time even opening their mouths to offer up praise to God. And yet we together as a congregation offer up praise to God. And so those who are singing heartily in that moment are in a sense carrying their they're discouraged, brother or sister, along in, in corporate song, in corporate praise. Wonderful, I think. Those who are filled with the Spirit will sing. 
They will give praise with their lips to the triune God within the Christian congregation. Secondly, they will give thanks. All of our singing, all of our praying is to be permeated with thanksgiving. But it is at the Lord's table that we give thanks in perhaps the most pronounced way as a congregation, as we celebrate what is called the Eucharist. Remember how Jesus took bread and after blessing it, He broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And He took a cup and when He had given thanks, He gave it to them saying, Drink of it all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And so when we come to the table, we are to give thanks as Christ did. He modeled this for us. It is the place where in a most pronounced way, we as a congregation offer up thanks to God for His provision for us. He has provided for us a Savior and He has met our every earthly need. And we are to give thanks to God as we come together as a congregation. Thirdly, those who are Spirit-filled will submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And with these words, Paul concludes his general exhortation to the church to walk in a manner that is worthy. Verse 21, submitting to one another out of a reverence for Christ. This is huge, and I hope you agree. In Christ, all are to submit to one another. This is what it means to walk in the Spirit. In Christ, all are to submit to one another, male and female, old and young, rich and poor, officer and member, are here commanded by the Apostle to submit to one another in Christ Jesus. Now, I assume that you're familiar with the section of Paul's epistle that is next, wherein he gives specific instructions to husbands and wives, parents and children, bondservants and masters, concerning their role within the home. It is well known that there Paul commands wives to submit to their husbands, children to their parents, and bondservants to their masters. And I draw your attention to this teaching prematurely in order to make this very important observation. Before the apostle commands wives, children, and bondservants to honor those who are over them, he commands all Christians to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. I will repeat that. Before the Apostle commands wives, children, bondservants to honor those who are over them, he commands all Christians to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And so tell me, how can it be that Christian wives are in Ephesians 5.22, the very next verse, commanded to submit to their husbands, when in 5.21 Paul commanded all Christians to submit to one another? How can this be? Did the apostle contradict himself in only, one, in only two verses? How can there possibly be this universal mutual submission, as described here in 521, and at the same time a particular kind of submission expected from some within the church? I pray that you would see that these two things are not at all contradictory. It is true that the wife is called by God to submit to her husband's authority within the home. But at the same time, it is also true that the husband, in another sense, is to submit to his wife in Christ Jesus. She does not have authority over him in the home, but she is a sister in Christ and an heir with him of the grace of life, to use the language from 1 Peter 
3.7. And because of this, the husband is to live with her in an understanding way. He is to honor her. He is to respect her. Yes, he is even to submit to her in Christ Jesus, putting her interests, her needs, her desires before his own. The point is this, before Paul commands wives, children, and bondservants to submit to those who have authority over them in the home, he commands all Christians to submit to one another in Christ Jesus. And this they will do if they are walking in the Spirit. The Spirit-filled Christian will be like Christ in this regard, looking out not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. I think that is the meaning here. When we are told to submit to one another in Christ Jesus... We are being commanded to, to, to clothe ourselves with the garb, garb of a servant continuously. To be willing to wash one another's feet, metaphorically speaking. To take that humble position just as Christ did. Christ, who was given authority above all things, humbled himself and washed the feet of his disciples. Christ, who is our head, the head of his church, who has supreme authority over us hung on a tree in our place. And we too are to have this same disposition within Christ's church. Paul does not here in 521 erase authority within the church. He does not erase authority within the home. But here by commanding mutual submission first, he reminds us of what Christian authority is to look like. Instead of authoritarianism, we are to lead in love. We are to put the needs and desires and interests of others before our own. May the Lord help us in these things, brothers and sisters. So friends, as we seek to walk worthy, let us not only put off the old sinful self and put on the new self created in Christ Jesus. Let us also pursue wisdom and let us be filled with the Spirit as we walk in the world together. May we fulfill God's calling to function as His holy temple as we Lord's Day by Lord's Day address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with our hearts, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Let's bow together for a word of prayer. Father in heaven, I pray that you would move us to not be content with a superficial kind of sanctification. I pray that you would move us to pursue true holiness in thought, in word, and in deed. Move us to pursue true wisdom. Help us to live godly in this world in an artful and skillful way. Move us, Lord, to Walk in the Spirit always, being driven, Lord, by Him, seeking to obey Your commandments, and being not driven by the flesh, seeking to find pleasure in the things of this world. Father, we ask for Your aid in this. We know it is what we ought to do. We do not always desire to do it. We pray that You would transform our hearts and strengthen us day by day. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.